Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Once again, good evening. Um, thank you so much to Tita and to Anna for having 40 people at your family farm. Um, to Pat for helping to organize. And um, all of you, and Ronit also for helping to organize. And all of you for making the first dinner goes so smoothly. And for me personally, this is so nice to be here uh, with people who uh, are new faces and new humans in my life, and also um, people who I've known a long time um, and have practiced with for a while. Um, And it's also nice to see people who have been practicing next to each other sometimes on silent retreat or sometimes Tuesday nights in Parkdale, who, who also haven't had a chance to communicate, starting to, to get to know each other as well. Um, so I'd like to just introduce the text that we're going to explore this weekend as a theme. Um, and so if you have it, you can take it out. Maybe you've uh, printed a copy. One of the things I mentioned on Tuesday night when we were studying Patanjali, for those of you, I know quite a few of you were there, is that there are so many... uh, And I certainly feel like I've studied with so many wonderful teachers, especially teachers from India and Tibet and Nepal and Korea and Japan and and other um, cultures. And um, everybody is speaking the truth. When a teacher says the sky is blue... It's like you know the sky is blue, but you see the blue in the sky again, as if for the first time. And uh, that can be very magical and uh, and very important. And one of the the themes for me that I've been trying to uh, uh, include in my own life, in my fathering, and in my community, and in my relationships and friendships, 
um, is not just exploring the big truths, um, but also figuring out how those truths are relevant. Because something can be true and not necessarily that relevant in your life. And so how to make sure that these teachings are not treated as just um, antiquarian or exotic treasures from uh, another century um, or from the axial age or whenever, um, but that something about these teachings are um, applicable in your own life so that they can help you to find um, kindness in your anger and compassion when there's uh, greed or jealousy, um, or try and uh, um, find uh, equanimity when there's agitation or impatience. Um, And also that the teachings speak not just to us at a personal, psychological level, but also at a social level and an economic level and an ecological level. Because... um, our ideas about our economy um, are really outdated. You know, here we are now um, pumping money, especially south of the border, um, into an economy that just fell apart in all the same patterns that we're using to start it back up again. And um, certainly um, when we look at our rivers and when we look at our forests, we see that there are major imbalances that need our attention. And if our spiritual practice is only focused on ourselves, um, I don't know how relevant it is to the other forms of suffering that are happening around us. And because of interdependence, we know that you can't just work on one layer uh, and expect that the others will change. So I hope that we take this into our reading of Dogen which might be a new reading of Dogen, um, because uh, our view is different than it was um, in 1240, when Dogen was uh, 41 years old. It was winter time. He was uh, living in a monastery in the suburbs of Kyoto, and he started writing about time. And for those of you that have studied some Buddhist teachings, uh, even teachings in uh, Chan or Zen, Usually when we hear about time, we only hear about impermanence. That's the main teaching of time. Um, And certainly when we do meditation practice, we come into contact viscerally with impermanence. Sensations come up in the body, and uh, if you sit still, they also dissolve again. My grandmother used to always say, if it's not one thing, it's another. (laughs) Thoughts come and go. Feelings come and go. What's so important one minute, five minutes later, is not so um, gripping or dominating. Um, But Dogen actually takes the whole notion of time and goes way further with it. And um, in his view, we could even say that, you know, one of the major causes of discontent in our life... um, is an unhealthy relationship we have with time and a kind of splitting that we do with time. And um, I think in a culture that's so visual, most of us, we think spatially. And we don't think so much on a temporal level. We think more, uh, even our, our metaphors are often more to do with 
uh, the space between things or the relationship between objects or subjects. And um, so this will be interesting for us to explore. Um, so um, let's look at the beginning of the text. The title of the text is called Uji. Uh, U means being, and G means time. And Uji can be translated as um, time being. And some of you who have studied some Western philosophy, you might know that when Heidegger met D.T. Suzuki, um, he became very interested in time. And uh, so his writings on time being and being time, uh, well, he hit it quite well, but come very much um, from his contact with Japanese Buddhism. Um, But here's some other translations that I came across, thanks to Robart's library. Um, At a certain time, there is a time, there is a time too, the identity of being and time, the identity of being time, the identity of time being, time identical being, um, those were the ones that stood out. Um, Dogen starts off in a really interesting way, and this is sort of a rule with Dogen, which is um, he always gives the whole teaching within the first couple of sentences and then unpacks it. And sometimes I think that's just to turn people off. Like, I don't know about you, but when you have this email to you and you read that first paragraph, you know, you probably just put it beside the toilet. (laughs) So he starts off with a quote. And the interesting thing about this quote is that the first two lines are a reference to an old Buddhist text written by his teacher, Yokusan. And then the rest of the quote, nobody really knows where it comes from. So it's possible that he was nodding to his teacher, but he was creating a quote on his own to begin this text. So in a way, you could say maybe breaking a little bit from lineage Um, trying to state something in a new language, um, but with a kind of a nod to tradition at the same time. So it starts off, for the time being, stand on top of the highest peak. For the time being, proceed along the bottom of the deepest ocean. And by saying an ancient Buddha said this, it's like saying, you know, something very wise in all of us Because the Buddha is not, we don't prostrate, um, even if you are, call yourself a Buddhist, you don't bow and prostrate to Gautama, you prostrate to Buddha, not to the person um, Siddhartha Gautama, but to Buddha, which is that in you that is already awake. And we all have this inside of us, I think this capacity to wake up, this desire to wake up and to be free. Um, And equally, we have the capacity also to shut down and to just stay in our comfortable, uh, confused um, addictions and compulsions. 
That's always amazing to me. I don't know for those of you who've been practicing a long time, but you go on a workshop like this or retreat and you contact that best part of yourself, you know. And then on Monday, (laughs) all the old habits come back. And so we'll watch this as we explore time, how we might get glimpses of what Dogen's saying about time, and then that will be shut down by our ideas about time. And this will be interesting to watch. Um, I think it's idealistic to think that um, we can just break through, and then we won't see those goblins anymore. So if you've ever climbed to a high peak, how many of you have ever done this? What happens to time? When I was uh, younger, uh, my brother and I went to a monastery uh, called Green Gulch Farms that uh, Shinra Suzuki started. And... um, we climbed up to the top of Mount Tam, which is the, the mountain that Golden Gate Bridge runs into in San Francisco. And um, the clouds were so low on the mountain, but the sun was so strong that you could see your shadow right in front of you in the cloud. Mm-hmm. Right? So we climbed up to the level where the clouds were, which is you know, almost all the time on Mount Tam. And uh, as you walk, your shadow is projected about a foot in front of you. And I remember just starting to giggle and laughing and running down the hill with my shadow. Jung would like that. And, um, and just this sense of time just completely lifting. And so, I, you know, I'm sure we could all go through climbing stories, you know, in Squamish at the Chief or wherever. And just moments where you're up and you have, sometimes this happens on airplanes too, you know, you just have a kind of change in your perceptual flow and time lifts. Or in the deepest ocean, how many of you have done scuba diving where uh, the freak out relaxes and then actually <coughs> you, you lose the sense of time? Has anybody had this? You know? Did you have your hand up? I, I never got over the freak out. The freak out. <laughs> I never got over the freak out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, you know, also, look, like, do, people, you know, at, in 1240 in Japan, people weren't scuba diving. <laughs> but you know that if you swim and you go deep and you open your eyes and once in a while you see a school of fish or whatever in a way that is not part of your daily perceptual sphere or band, then um, something happens with time. So that's what he's referring to to here. Go to the top, go to the bottom, and something happens with time. For the time being, three heads and eight arms. So when you first hear, go to the top, it can connote a kind of peak experience. And I think those of you who've been practicing in this community for a little while, you know that like we're not so into peak experiences. You know? Um, I like to joke that like peak experiences are like after the drug phase, <laughs> and then you're ready to actually start to meditate. <laughs> you know? 
And some of you might know, you know, some of the most prominent, you know, Buddhist teachers are all, you know, ex, you know. Um, <laughs> I mean, Joan Halifax and Stanislav Grof used to administer LSD to dying people and themselves, you know, and then learned how to meditate. And um, so, you know, this practice is not about peak experiences. And I think if we come into meditation really wanting peak experiences, um, we suffer a lot through our practice. Um, And so Dogen goes from the very top to the very bottom and then says three heads and eight arms. And some of you might know what this is referring to, which are the wrathful deities, right? Like time is suspended or we change our relationship with time not just in the peak experiences, but also in the everyday wrathful deities. Because in one moment there's joy and sunshine, and then the next minute there's the wrathful deity and rain clouds. And, and you know, this is what our life is like. And it would be naive to deny that moods don't come in and, uh, and color and sometimes uh, treat us uh, or, or, you know, we set ourselves up sometimes, too, to be treated by our moods, just like a wrathful deity would treat something, throwing it around, throwing us around. So this is three heads and eight arms. And, of course, this is a cultural reference, but you, you, you've seen the artwork. You know what three heads and eight arms look like, but you've also seen it in your own life. I mean, how many of you are uh, uh, in relationships so it's like you know three heads and eight arms you know it in the other (laughs) how many of you have enemies right does anybody have an enemy you know three heads and eight arms you know Um, for the time being an eight or sixteen foot buddha or an 8 or 16 foot Buddha body. Has anybody here ever been in the presence of um, a statue, the Buddha, or, you know, another statue that is huge? And what that does to your alignment? Especially statues that, you know, are not necessarily, you know, heroes of war or something. You know, the other day, um, I was with my son in the store, Courage My Love. Do you know the store? Mm -hmm. And they have on a shelf a pretty huge Buddha from Thailand, maybe like three feet tall. And he wanted to climb up the ladder and just go eye to eye (laughs) with the Buddha. And, uh, And when you do it, it's really quite profound. Because there's this huge bronze, weighty... Um, set of receptive eyes looking right back at you. It's kind of like looking into the eyes of a cow. Have you ever, have you ever looked into the eyes of a cow? It's like this, you know. That's an 18-foot Buddha. <laughs> you know? um, for the time being, a staff or a whisk, which is exactly what you think. A staff or a whisk. Um, sometimes in uh, Zen practice, you know that a staff would be used to hit you um, if you weren't sitting 
uh, properly. Um, so um, that can be one use of a staff. Staff can also, you know, help you get around. Or a whisk. You know, just a utensil in your kitchen. So that is, the whisk is time being. The whisk is not wondering to itself how it's doing as a whisk. (laughs) Just like you sit in here and you are wondering maybe if you're doing a good job, when it's going to end, how long we sat for, how long we might sit for, uh, all these things. And meanwhile, you know, the wall is just it's not wondering how good it's doing, holding up the ceiling, and if you'll like it, and how long it's going to last. <laughs> and, and what's interesting about that is, is that when you're being yourself, and you're in time, when you're just being yourself, um, you don't check and recheck yourself with the same level of self-consciousness and awareness of time. For the time being, a pillar or a lantern. For the time being, the sons of Chang and Li. For the time being, the earth and sky. For the time being here, so this is Dogen commenting now on this quote that he actually created. (laughs) Um, For the time being here means time itself is being, and all being is time. Being and time cannot be divorced from each other. When we're being, we're in time. When we're being, we're in time. But we all know that sometimes five minutes can seem like an hour. And sometimes an hour can seem like five minutes. I mean, anybody here who's done any meditation retreat knows this. Especially the last period in the morning before the lunch bell, which is like the best time for sitting. And then after lunch, we have this idea that we superimpose on the practice Oh, after lunch. Like, there isn't the lunch, you can't look forward to the lunch bell anymore. And you know that the next bell for food is not till like six. And then you have all this projection on Tessa. You know, like, she's not ringing the bell at the right time. Um, When I was preparing for this this weekend, one of the things I was noticing during the week was that whenever I was having conversations with people, Pat and I talked about this this morning, are, we're always talking about the time. How was your week? What happened this week? For those of you who, who, who are psychotherapists, you know this too, you know, like the first 20 minutes of seeing a client is like catching up on what happened. And your job as a, as a clinician, um, if you're employing these practices, is when somebody's talking about what happened in the last couple of weeks, you're not listening for what happened in the past couple of weeks. You're listening for the way they're describing what happened in the past couple of weeks. Because that's what's alive right now. That's what's presenting right now. The, the content is really not that interesting. You know? <laughs> 
Because you've heard it before, because it's the same thing that was happening six weeks ago. <laughs> And I was noticing in my conversations, just, you know, I have a good friend going away for 10 days, and we spent like half the day just making plans of how we could see each other and say goodbye before they were going away for 10 days. <laughs> and, uh, and our language, the words we use, are so structured in time. I mean, language is so structured in time. Never mind a personal pronoun and so on in the English language, but language itself is, is caught in time in all kinds of strange ways. And when you look at the language in your own mind, um, when we're staying with the, the breath, we notice that the, the language that we use as we're talking to ourselves is always in the future or in the past. You know, we don't have a language. We're going to ex- explore if this is true tomorrow. So don't don't trust me on this. But we don't really have a very honed language about the present. Our language is mostly about the future and mostly about the past. And the best way to see that is um, sitting still and noticing your thoughts from a place of stillness. And noticing how much um, you're in the future or in the past. And then if that's happening so much in my own mind, then what's happening in my relationships with people where I'm seeing them as potentials in the future or history? Where I'm not, I'm not seeing my friends as now. I'm seeing my friends as how they were or potential. There, there's this book, I don't know the woman who wrote it, called Broken Open. Has anybody read that book about the woman who started the Omega Center? And it's all about, no, you know, never mind. <laughs> well, anyways, she's talking about this, this, this uh, marriage that fell apart. And she describes uh, the marriage as, I was in love with potential. Has anybody here ever been in a relationship? (laughs) I was in love with potential. Where in a way, sometimes we're actually a bit terrified about the present because we're so invested in the potential of what it could be. So um, these are some aspects of time that Dogen is bringing up right off the bat here. Um, A golden 16-foot Buddha body is time, and because it's time, there's the radiant illumination of time. So he's again talking about a bit of that peak experience, the radiant illumination of time, where time just blows up, and here we are. And here's life. Radiant illumination. You know, everything is bigger and brighter and buoyant and so on. Study it as the 12 hours of the present. It's a little play. He's tricking you here, right? Mm. So some of you who've studied Dogen, you know this. He takes a sentence, he breaks it up, he flips it backwards, flips it the other way, 
constant play with language to really keep you attentive. So, they, so in 1240 in Japan, a day was measured in terms of 12 hours, not 24 hours. So uh, for us, we would say, measure it as the 24 hours of the present. But I love that. He doesn't say measure it as the 24 hours of your day. The 24 hours is happening presently. And so you can measure the essence of time in 24 hours by being there for 24 hours. I mean, we could talk about retreat, but we, you know, this happens to me on canoe trips. You know, maybe after a few, it takes a few days, I think, to like, sometimes the first few days on a canoe trip, I feel like I'm just seeing the landscape on television or something, or like on Flickr. You know, like good photographs that somebody took. And uh, what happens when you get rid of your watch, you start going to sleep when the sun goes down. And you start getting up when the sun rises. And you start forgetting about time. And then in that forgetting, in the forgetting of time, another kind of time wakes up in us. This kind of rhythmic time where... There's like a, a movement that the body knows without a kind of clock that's measuring it. And um, as city people, most of us, we forget about that time. Because the lights are on all the time. Or like, I've never been to a casino, but you know, apparently in a casino, there's no time. Like, there's no... Uh, change of um, light. <laughs> Which is probably how they can listen to Celine Dion all day long. to read something about that. Let me finish this paragraph. (coughs) Study it as the twelve hours of the present. Three heads and eight arms is time. Because it's time, it's not separate from the twelve hours of the present. Nothing, even the object that you see, is not separate than the 24 hours of our day. What does this mean? What does this mean? Both perceptions. Say a little more. Uh, well, we perceive them at any one moment. Yeah. It doesn't matter if it's a big statue, or, or it's time. It's our experience of the perception of what we're experiencing. Right. So you can look at the Buddha, the, or the, the 18-foot body, the 50-foot body, the World Trade Center, the CN Tower, and you can become that CN Tower. Or you can separate <laughs> out. Mm-hmm. And you can do the same thing with time. Does it also mean... 
whatever shows up, whether it's on the big three heads and it's all part of the same. Yeah. It's all now. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, some of us have studied so much, you know, you, you can't have an object without a subject. And so when you create an object, you create a sense of self. And when we're in flow, we forget about ourselves. We're not creating objects. Those of you who make art, who do any kind of creative work, you know this. That once in a while, um, uh, the flow happens. And um, we're not thinking anymore about the, the blank piece of paper that we're typing on. We're not thinking anymore about the canvas or the piece of wood or the violin or, you know, whatever. Um, There's not an object we're working with anymore. That falls away. And in the falling, it's a collapsing. And in the collapsing of the object, the self collapses. And what's left is yourself. But not the self you think is yourself. (laughs) What's left is the whisk and the staff and the 18-foot body. And what's left is time, but not the kind of time you measure. And again, I think this way of thinking is, we don't do this with time. You know, we, don't, we, don't, we can think in terms of space, but I think we have a difficulty sometimes because we're governed by the clock in actually seeing the clock. Well, I'm surprised we made it through the first paragraph. (laughs) Is there anything anybody would like to say? Any comments? Yeah. quite how to explain this, but there are times when that present moment experience very quickly, there is no time there. Uh-huh. And how does that experience of no time, I mean time actually disappears. Yeah. <laughs> is that what we're talking about here as well? Yeah. Yeah, time disappears and um, so does the self. So do you. You're so present that you're not there, that you're so there. Mm -hmm. And you can do this canoeing and making love and listening to music and playing an instrument. My son, you know, uh, you know, some of you know him. He's he's really into music, and um, he'll put on a record and put on his headphones, and he's gone. He's so there in the music but he's gone, you see? And uh, I don't know about you, but actually I think my, some of my first spiritual experiences were, were with records and at concerts, you know, where you're so there that you've forgotten about yourself, you know, and you forget about time. So back to what you, you both were saying, that you can make time into an object, just like you can make a statue into an object, or whatever's arising into an object, or another person into an object. I mean, we all know this, right? Like, um, 
you, for example, with parents, you know, this is, this is a good one with parents, you know, where, you know, you sit with your, your father and you talk to them. And all the while there's this background category we have, father, this is my dad, you know. And there's a kind of way we miss each other because you're, you're, you're still kind of framing him as your dad. And then once in a while there's a moment, and it happens maybe not as often as we would all like, where he forgets that you're his daughter or son, and you forget he's your father in a healthy way. And um, <laughs> time dissolves. And for a moment there's connection. There's connection. But mostly we go around with our parents saying, oh, they don't see me. They don't see me. But sometimes we don't see them because we're still framing them as our parents. And in a way, that's why this practice is so important because it's giving us these practical tools where we can learn to work with these patterns that arise in the mind and not just be, you know, not just stay caught up in the gossip and the framing that so dominates the way our minds work most of the time. So, um, not objectifying time, either. One thing that I reflect on in the last two years (laughs) is that I do have a different experience of time. Mm -hmm. And I I ask myself, is this because I'm older, (coughs) do I have early Alzheimer's, and time doesn't Mm -hmm. seem to need to be a structure? Mm -hmm. Or is it my experience of meditation that's having this impact on me, or maybe both? Or is it just a natural life process Mm that you have? less tasks you have to do, some of the major tasks in your life yeah. may be behind you. But I do experience time differently. Yeah. 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 And sometimes I just can't believe, like, wow, time is not as important as it yeah. It's just there. Yeah. You know, the first time I started practicing uh, in a formal way, um, the thing that I was most concerned about and, you know, I got this a lot, you know, going to a monastery or whatever, was the schedule and all the bell ringing and the bowing and just the form. And I don't know, for those of you, some of you actually have just in the past couple of years done some of your first retreats. And um, I think that's usually a fear at the beginning. And um, then to have that experience where the form and the timing and someone else ringing the bell allows you to forget about it all. Mm-hmm. You just know what to do. I mean, we won't get that taste so much this weekend because it's only three days, but you know, when you stretch it out for four days and five days and ten days, you just, you don't have, everything just <laughs> follows the schedule and then you don't think about it anymore. Mm-hmm. And um, how lovely that is when that can happen. And the same is true when we're canoeing. Okay, so I, I get the experience of if you as you measure time, oh, so yeah. the clock, yeah. um, that takes you out of the moment. Uh-huh. Yeah. But I have another experience, uh, you know, when I am in the flow, and that is yeah. the experience of events. Yes. Okay, so sure. events will take me out of that 
yeah. uh, presence. Yeah. Um, I, I don't recall much here about events. Uh -huh. But I'm just We're only in the they... first paragraph. Mm. <laughs> well, second. Oh. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. But um, but remember though what what he did at the beginning and, and you know I, do, I don't want to lose this because I think this gets looked over in this text because people think it's you know esoteric or something but he goes the highest peak mm -hmm. the bottom of the ocean mm -hmm. and then a staff or a whisk mm -hmm. so he's not saying that you know this experience like I mean in a way he's modeling how our minds work that mm -hmm. oh yeah I lose a sense of time where I'm playing with my son, rolling around under the dining room table, and there's no time, and we're listening to Johnny Cash. And, you know, and then, um, then there's, like, we're hungry, and, you know, he's got to, you know, get to school, whatever. Um, that's the staff and the whisk. And uh, the staff is, you know, we also have to mark the time. I mean, you've got to get to school, and you can't be late, because other people are counting on you. Um... Or the whisk is, you know, we've also got to make, you know, we got to go to the common, get our coffee on time. <laughs> um, so, you know, the point is there's a middle path. And the middle path is between the extremes of the mystical experience. Mm -hmm. And what I love about Dogen is just this way of not presenting spiritual practice as something special. Fine, sometimes it's on the top of a mountain, but sometimes it's just with a whisk making scrambled tofu. Yeah, it's, the events I'm talking about are like the interrupts. Yeah, you know, like I, that's, I just, that's the whisk. Yeah, that's okay. the staff. Yeah, okay. And he's going to deal with it. Okay. Yeah. I promise. And if he doesn't, you know, we'll... I'll come back. We'll fight with him. <laughs> yeah. yeah. One more comment. Pat, yeah. Well, just as I, I look at it, I read it, you know, as for the time being a staff or a whisk, for the time being a pillar or a lantern. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like whenever or wherever I went, wherever you are, I'm, whenever it is, being with or being what it, what is, mm -hmm. regardless, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Regardless. Mm. And seeing yes. it. Mm -hmm. Here mm -hmm. are the eight heads, or three heads, or ten heads. Mm -hmm. So this is what we have to look forward to all weekend. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, I just did it. <laughs> so some of you know the chant we usually uh, chant to finish our evenings and so we'll end with, uh, with the chant